We're learning about nothing new this morning, stuff that we've heard before in the past, but I hope to bring it in a way that we maybe sheds a little different light than we have seen before, and I hope that uh, we can all learn something from it. We're going to take our text from 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 11, and our study will go all the way through chapter 6 and verse 3, and we, our title of our lesson is just simply God. So we'll begin reading our text in 2 Corinthians begin, uh, 5, beginning in verse 11. Knowing, therefore, the terror of the Lord, we persuade men, but we are well known to God, and I also trust are well known in your consciences. For we do not commend ourselves again to you, but give you opportunity to boast on our behalf that you may have an answer for those who boast in appearance and not in heart. For if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. Or if we are of sound mind, it is for you. For the love of Christ compels us because we judge thus, that if one died for all, then all died. And he died for all, that those who live should live no longer for themselves, but for him who died for them and rose again. Therefore, from now on, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we have known Christ according to the flesh, yet now we know him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Now all things are of God, who has reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not imputing their trespasses to them, and has committed to us the world of recon word of reconciliation. Now then, we are ambassadors for Christ. As though God were pleading through us, we implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become his righteousness of God in him, become the righteousness of God in him. We then, as workers together with him, also plead with you not to receive the grace of God in vain. For he says, in an acceptable time I have heard you. And in the day of salvation, I have helped you. Behold, now is the accepted time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. We give no offense in anything that our ministry may not be blamed. So, as members of the church here at Plans Road in Bakersfield, may the fear of God captivate us. In verse 11, he says, Since then, we know... What it is to fear the Lord, we try to persuade others. Paul says, I do, we do, we all do what we do because of the fear of God. Yeah, there's a hunt, uh, over uh, 300 times in different times in the scripture where the fear of God is talked about. 300 times, like in Psalms uh, 111 and verse 10, it says the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And so when we go to the commentaries of this passage here in 2 Corinthians uh, dealing with verse 11, we immediately read that this is talking about reverence and respect of God. And I have no doubt in my mind that that's partly what it means, but I don't want us to think that when we read just about reverence and respect, we miss to have the fear of God, to fear Him. And when I read that, that's what I see. And when, and uh, 
you know, we read about people who came into contact with God, you know, in the Old Testament. We read about, um, you know, uh, Isaiah got a glimpse of the glory of God and his immediate reaction was, I am dead, I am dead. Can't even lift his face before God. And some people say, well, that's just the Old Testament. You know, things were different back then. Well, that's not the case. You know, if we go to Revelation, John, um, who was the beloved disciple and the one whom Jesus loved, John got a glimpse of Jesus in heaven. And he says, as soon as I saw him, I fell over as though I was dead. And then he goes on to write about, of course, thousands and thousands of angels who are bowing down to the throne of God in awe and dreadful fear to God. And I'm convinced that if we got a glimpse of God here today, we would not be standing. We would be in fear and in awe of God. And if we knew the gravity of the one who we've gathered here this morning to worship in this room, and he came, we would not be standing. We'd be on our faces. And that causes me to look at my life and see such a lack of fear sometimes that I have, that we have. From God, and uh, you know, do we realize who we're worshiping? And even in prayer, do we realize who we're praying to? I know when I pray, my mind tends to wander sometimes. You know, I think about what people are thinking of me when I pray. What are they thinking about my prayer? And I'm, I'm, I'm not even thinking of the fact that we're, we're praying to God. And we're about to listen to God's passages here, listen to the Word of God speak to us here uh, through what we're going to study, and, and we just need to understand that. And I hope we not, of course, gather here this morning just to hear myself preach um, or hear some good harmony in our songs. And if we are here for that, then we've missed the whole point, the entire point. We've gathered here to meet with God. And sometimes Sunday after Sunday, it feels like sometimes there's such a casual, casual approach to our worship, to what I've done or what we do, and that cannot be so. It makes no sense. Of course, this is casual Christianity in our culture right now. Very casual. And so I want us, before we go any further, I want us to think about what we've gathered here, who we've gathered here to meet with and to worship. And before we, we go any further, I've asked four brethren to come forward and, and, and give us four passages that I've either told them to read or that they suggested to me to read, which explains the fear of God, that shows the reverence and respect that we ought to have God. And once they come up here, I will get back up and finish up my lesson. So we'll have... Um, um, I'll start with a with a first passage, and then the brethren know which ones are coming up after that. So Psalms ninety seven, verses one through six. The Lord reigns; let the earth rejoice; let the multitude of the isles be glad. Clouds and darkness surround him. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of his throne. A fire goes before him and burns up his enemies round about. His lightnings light the world. The earth sees and trembles. The mountains melt like wax at the presence of the Lord. At the presence of the Lord, the whole earth. The heavens declare his righteousness and all the people see his glory.
I'm reading from Isaiah, the 40th chapter, verses 21 through 26. Prophet Isaiah says, Have you not known? Have you not heard? Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? It is he who sits above the circle of the earth. And its inhabitants are like grasshoppers, who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them out like a tent to dwell in. He brings the princes to nothing. He makes the judges of the earth useless. Scarcely shall they be planted, scarcely shall they be sown, scarcely shall their stock take root in the earth, when he will also blow on them and they will wither, and the whirlwind will take them away like stubble. To whom then will you liken me? <clears throat> or to whom shall I be equal? Says the Holy One. Lift up your eyes on high and see who has created these things, who brings out their host by number. He calls them all by name, by the greatness of his might and the strength of his power. No one is missing. I'll be reading from Isaiah chapter 6, and we will read verses 1 through 5. Isaiah chapter 6, verses 1 through 5. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above it stood seraphim, each one with, with six wings, two that covered his face, with two that covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one cried to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the posts of the door were shaken by the voice of him who cried out, and the house was filled with smoke. So I said, Woe is me, for I am undone, because I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. I'll be reading. I'll be reading from uh, Psalms 50, chapter 16 to 23. But to the wicked, God says, "What right have you declare my statutes, or take my covenant in your mouth, seeing you hate instructions and cast my words behind you? When you saw a thief, you consented with him, and have been partaking of adulteries." You give your mouth to evil, and your tongue frames dissent. You sit and speak against your brother. You slander your own mother's son. These things you have done, and I keep silent. You thought I, that I was altogether like you? But I will rebuke you and send them in order before your eyes. Now consider this, you who forgot God, lest I tear you up pieces and there be none to deliver. However, offer praises, glorify me, and, in, and to him who orders his conduct again or right, I will show the salvation of God. 
I'll be reading from Revelations, the fourth chapter. I'm reading from the uh, King James Version. Revelations 4, and I'll begin reading there in verse number 4. And around about the throne were four and twenty seats. And upon the seats I saw four and twenty elders sitting, clothed in white raiment. And they had on their heads crowns of gold, and out of the throne proceedings lightnings and thunderings and voices. And there were seven lamps of fire burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne there was a sea of glass like unto crystal. And in the midst of the throne and around about the throne were four beasts full of eyes before and behind. And the first beast was like a lion, and the second beast like a calf. The third beast had a face as a man, and the fourth beast was like a flying eagle. And the four beasts had each of them six wings about him, and they were full of eyes within. And they rest not day and night, saying, Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, which was and is and is to come. Just think for a moment about the way your life changes when you realize this is the God that we worship. When we're captivated by the fear of God. We look back up to 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 6 uh, because down in verse 11 he says, Therefore knowing the fear of the Lord. So we know that he's building upon something. That's, why he, that's what he just said because it says therefore or in light of this. So what's he building on? In verse, listen to verse 6. He says there, So we are always confident, knowing that while we are at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord. For we, for we walk by faith, not by sight. We are confident, yes, well pleased rather to be absent from the body than to be present with the Lord. Therefore we make it our aim, whether present or absent, to be well pleasing in Him. So whether we are at home or away, we are to please him. And then we listen to verse 10 here. It says, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that, that each one may receive the things done in the body according to what has been done, whether good or bad. So here's where I, I don't necessarily think that it's just reverence of respect for Paul here. This is fear. In his own life, he knows that one day he's going to be standing before Jesus to be judged. And he knows what I want to remind all of us here this morning, every single person in this room, that we are going to be standing before Christ one day and he will be judging us. So Paul says, as a result, my aim in my, in my life is to please him. That's my only aim. That's his only goal is to please him. And I think about, you know, my life uh, and even in my, you know, my teaching and, and singing and in this congregation, my aim is not to please you. My aim is not to please anybody else. Like, in a, in a sense, but not in an arrogant way, I could care less about what you think about me. 
Because in the end, you're not going to judge me. Jesus will be our judge. We are going to stand before Him. And I'm going to be held accountable for whether I did or did not do what Jesus instructed us to do. Instructed me to do. My aim is to please Him. Our aim is to please Him. So this is where I, uh, we realize the beauty of the fear of God. It's what Proverbs 19.23 says, the fear of the Lord leads to life. And he who has it will abide in satisfaction. So whoever has the fear of the Lord can be satisfied. And why can it be satisfied? Because we're free from fearing anything else in this world. If we have the fear of God, we've got nothing else to fear. We don't have to be afraid of anything else. We don't have to be afraid of death itself. We don't have to fear death. We don't have to fear man. We don't have to fear anything else when we fear God. And it changes us. It changes you. We live with courage in this world. We're not afraid to speak the gospel to those around us, those that we work with. We're not afraid of being awkward around them because of that. We're not afraid of rejection. What we're afraid of is standing before Christ one day and being accountable for what we did in our lives for him. Man is not our judge. Christ is our judge, and we should fear him. Then we think about how that compels us uh, the way we live with others. Then he says in verse 11, knowing therefore the terror of the Lord, we persuade men, but we are well known to God, and I also trust are well known in your consciousness. And he's talking about the work or the ministry, sharing the gospel with those around him. With other people, he's trying to persuade them to come to Christ, and he does this because of the fear of the Lord. Because it's not, he knows it's not just him that's going to be standing before Christ one day, it's going to be everybody standing before Christ one day. And so Paul is trying to spread the gospel and do the work that he has been instructed to do. So we think about our friends, our core workers, our family members who don't know Christ. One day they're going to be standing before Christ as well as his judge. It could be denied. None of us. Not one of our family members are, are guaranteed tomorrow or the next hour or the next week. We're not guaranteed that. So the fear of God leads us to persuade them today. And here we realize knowing the fear of God has a huge, huge effect on our day-to-day -day living. So if we approach church or Christianity as a casual ho-hum, then you know we're not compelled the next day to go to our co-worker or to our friends or those who we're acquainted with and, 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 and say, you need to hear about Christ. I want to persuade you to trust in Christ. Why? So they can participate in the routine that we go through? No. When we're gripped by the fear of God and we see a co-worker tomorrow morning or a friend, or, we talk to them, concerned for their soul concerned for the judgment day, or compelled to persuade them. It even came up in a conversation the other day that there are roughly 2 billion people in this world right now who have little to no access or know who Jesus is. They've never heard his name or don't have access to the gospel. Well, those people are going to be accountable as well. They're going to be accountable whether or not they've obeyed Jesus for salvation. Having not heard the gospel, they will have no opportunity to trust in Christ and obey him. And they're going to stand before him and be sentenced to either eternity apart or with him. 
So people who fear God and know that judgment is coming, we don't sit back and use all of our resources making church a little more comfortable for us or for ourselves. And so I hope that encourages us. So some might be thinking, well, the fear of God, well, is it all just fear and doom and gloom? Why just fear? Doesn't God love us? Of course he does. Look at this. May the fear of God control us. So uh, Paul, after talking about the fear of the Lord, starts commending himself in his ministry. He's, he's describing his ministry. He says in verse 13, For if we are beside ourselves, it is of God. Or if we are of sound mind, it is for you. And then he says in verse 14, which is a great phrase, For the love of Christ compels us. The love of Christ compels us. We're compelled. We're controlled by the love of God. One translation I came across said, the love of Christ leaves me no other option. Like, leaves us no other option. Christ's love for us. There's nothing else that we can be doing. And it's, in a sense, we're, we're controlled by his love. Because we judge this, that if one died for all, then all died. And he died for all. That those who live should no longer live for themselves. But for him who died for them and rose again. So we need to contemplate the immensity of God's love for all. So he died for all, verse 15 says. Now some people uh, take this text immediately and go into uh, universalism. And say, well, that means everybody is going to be saved in the end because Christ died for all. And that's not what this passage is saying at all. The passage is clearly talking about those who have died with Christ, who have trusted in Him and have obeyed the gospel call, which is what we're going to talk about in a second when it comes to reconciliation. But we, but we know, of course, in John 3.16, God so loved the world that He gave His only Son. God loves the whole sinful world and He loves everybody. 2 Peter 3.9 says, The Lord is not slack concerning His promise, and some count slackness, but is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. He desires all people, everyone, all, to come to repentance. We think about the worst uh, people on the planet, worst terrorists, you know. We just heard this last week of a guy who went to his workplace in San Jose and decided to take a few of his co-workers' lives and then his own. God desires him desired him at one point for repentance. We think about people who, you know, the most vile people in the world, God died, or Jesus died for them as well. He created that person in his own image. We just need to contemplate the immensity of that and his love for us. So when we think about Everybody around us, our friends, our co-workers, our acquaintances, God died for them as well. And this is what I love about Paul when he says Christ died for all because Christ's death is sufficient for all. Galatians 2.20 says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me and the life which I now live in the flesh. I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Jesus died for us. Jesus loves me. Jesus loves you. And so we just think about this for a minute. All these passages that we've read. The God around whom 
thousands upon thousands of angels at this moment, right now, are bowing down, never ceasing, day and night, singing, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. This is the God who calls the stars by name, the God who, can, who is the consuming fire. This is the God who spoke all creation and came into being. He spoke a word and we got light. He spoke a word and we received darkness. He spoke a word in the ocean. We had oceans and mountains. He spoke a word and you got animals. This is the God right now who is sustaining 7 billion people in this world at this time. And on top of that number, he's sustaining all the animals and plants and weather and the insects, everything. He's allowing you to take that breath that you just took. God sustains all. And this God loves you and I. And when we think about that and we understand God, it'll take and should take control of our lives. It will leave us with no choice. And that's what's so interesting. It goes against all the self-esteem and the self take care of yourself culture that we live in in this time. You know, we think love means that we need to think about ourselves more often. And that's, that's completely opposite of what God tells us, us to do. The love of God for Paul caused Paul for him to think less about himself and to think more about living for Christ and others. And so may the love of God control us. The gospel of God reconciles us. We're going to go come back to verses 16 and 17 in a second. But in verses 18 through 21, he starts talking about the reconciliation. And he uses that word five different times in verses 18, 19, and 20. Be reconciled, reconciling, reconciliation, reconciled. And the whole picture here is not just reconciliation to God, but reconciliation to others. And remember the context that we're talking about here in Corinthians. Paul was experiencing conflict between the members at Corinth here. And he was trying to write about reconciliation with others and with them. And, but he knows that reconciliation with them is only based on reconciliation with God first. And understanding the gospel. And that's what brings us together here in this building. Right? This is uh, what makes the church the church. The gospel of reconciliation. As God reconciles himself to us, he reconciles us to each other. And it brings us together. What unites us in this room is not gender or ethnicity or socioeconomic status of this kind or a background of that kind or political positions or that kind of political position. No, we're, we're brought here together solely by the fact that we have been reconciled to God through Christ. That's why we are here together. In our sin... We were separated from God as his enemies. So members here in this congregation, in our sin, we were once separated from God as his enemies. That was all of our problem. We were all enemies of God. James 4.4 4 says, Adulterers and adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Whoever therefore wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Because we have all sinned against God, every single one of us in this room has rebelled against God, and this, this holy God that we, that we worship. And every single one of us has said at some point, you are not Lord of my life. I'm going to go ahead and do things my way. We've all done it. We've all said it. And every one of us has turned aside from his way to our way. This is the God who 
speaks and the ocean waves obey, the God who speaks and the clouds go out and come in according to His Word. And this is the God who speaks and everything and all creation responds in obedience to Him until we get back to man, you and I, and this God speaks. We have the audacity to say no. We have the audacity to reject God and what He has told us to do. And in our sin, as a result, we have been set free from God as His enemies. So what has this God done? Through our substitute, we have been reconciled to God. In verse 15, when it said that one has died for all, that preposition for means or in the place of, but for him who died for them. In our place, he was died, he died and raised, talking about Jesus. The same thing down in verse 21. For our sake, or in our place, God, for, God, for he made him who knew no sin to become sin. <clears throat> this is where, through our substitute, we see from the very beginning of the Bible, all the way through the Bible, because of our rebellion against God, we deserve to be separated from him forever because of our sin. The payment for sin is death, eternal death. And all of us in this room deserve it uh, uh, because of our sin against God. We deserve eternal, eternal death. This is the reality of the Bible. It teaches it from cover to cover. Sin leads to death. So what has God done? He has sent his son to come to us. And in verse 21, it says, Christ had no sin in him. Christ had no sin, nothing, perfection. Jesus lived the life that none of us could live. Jesus lived a perfect, sinless life, but then died. So, well, if, if the punishment or the payment for sin is death and Christ died, why did he die if he had no sin? How is that possible? Well, he is the substitute for sinners. He is dying in our place because of our sin. He's taking the payment of sin due to you and to me upon himself so that we can be reconciled to God. But that's not the end, though. It, uh, and that's the beauty of reconciliation is that it just takes us one step further. One writer summed it up best. He said, Justification is a judicial term that used, that's used in the courts. A judge may acquit an accused person without ever entering into a personal relationship with him or her. He announces the verdict, not guilty. The accused hardly expects to be invited over for dinner by the judge and probably hopes he will never see that judge again and the judge is same for him. But here, the judge enters into a personal relationship with the accused, which is necessary because the judge is the one who has been sinned against as the focus of the personal hostility. God does not simply make a bookkeeping alteration by dropping charges against us. Instead, God gives himself to us. How is this possible? Verse 18. All things are of God. So get this. The God is the author of reconciliation. God does all of this. William Temple said, The only thing that I contribute to my redemption is the sin from which I need to be redeemed. That's the only thing we bring to the table is the problem. And that's the beauty of reconciliation. Every time we are reconciled, the word reconciled is used here as a verb. It's a passive verb, like we are reconciled to God, which begs the question, 
Who's the subject who's reconciling us? It's God reconciling us to God. God's the author of reconciliation. So uh, stay with me here for a second. It's going to take just a couple minutes to kind of show this to you. Um, He's the giver of the gospel. We don't reconcile ourselves. We're reconciled by God, and only God can do this in us. Then he's the gift of the gospel. So what's the gift of the gospel that God offers, offers, offers in reconciliation? He offers himself. God reconciles us to himself. God gives himself, and in verse 21, his righteousness. In the gospel, God gives us himself, which is why we completely turn aside from the contemporary teaching of persuasion in the church that says, you know, come to Christ for prosperity, come to Christ for health, come to Christ for wealth, come to Christ, you know, for the best life, and come to Christ to get this or that. That's not why we come to Christ. We come to Christ to get God. And He's the one we want, and He's the one we need. We take all the things of this world. We don't, we don't need all the things in this world. All we need is God. He is the one we need. He's the one uh, we're created to know and to enjoy and to worship and to glorify forever and ever. And we want and need this God. And He is the gift of the gospel. In the end, He is the goal of the gospel. The one who gives all this grace and He gets the glory. He gets all of it. God glorifies Himself in reconciling sinners to Himself. So how does He do this? Christ is the agent of reconciliation. It is only possible through Christ. Verse 18 says, Who through Christ reconciled us to himself? And in verse 19, In Christ God was reconciling the world to himself. Verse 21, For our sake he made him sin to be sin. He made him to be sin who knew no sin. That's Christ, so that in him, Christ, we might become the righteousness of God. So what does this mean? In our sin, we were separated from God. We wouldn't over that. And we were God's enemies. And Jesus came as our substitute. And he suffered our separation, meaning that he took our place as the enemies of God. This is why on the, the, uh, the crucifixion cross, Jesus looked up into the skies and cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? In the mysterious picture of the son becoming sin and taking that payment sin upon himself. And we think about, you know, we think about the uh, sins that we've committed in our life. We think about everything that we've done that has just been despicable. You know, we can't think of all of them, of course, but the ones that come to your mind, you know, we think about that stuff. And we think about those that we've done wrong against. You know, we think about the sin, you know, if we display this, our sins upon this screen here, we would shudder to think that anybody would know that we had done some of the things that we've done. We would run out of here in embarrassment and shame. And then we realize those sins have been put on Jesus. There's payment for those. There's payment for those sins. And he stepped in between you and that payment and took it. He suffered our separation and in doing so, he secured our salvation. 
so that he takes our sin. This, this glorious exchange that we can read about. He takes our sin and we get his righteousness. So that right now when we stand before God and he looks at you and I, he doesn't see that sin. He sees the righteousness of his son. And that is the glorious truth that we can read about. He secures our salvation. We are the acceptors of reconciliation. What do we bring to the table? We simply bring the problem. God does it all. Do we need to be reconciled to God? And have you been reconciled to God? And when you are reconciled, or if you have been reconciled, what happens is that we have a new entire identity. And that's the beauty. Backing up into verse 17, it says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. New creation, new heart, new spirit, new wants, new desires, new life, new identity. We're now reconciled to the one who's created us to have life and enjoy life now and forever. Transformed, he's transformed us inside and out. An entirely new identity. That's why Paul said in Galatians 2.20, he says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. In the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. It all comes together. This is our identity. You are in Christ, Christ is in you, and that's what defines you and I. We are not ultimately a husband or a wife, a mom or a dad, single or married, widowed or divorced. We are not defined by how we look, by what we wear, by what you do for a living, how much you make, where you live, who you cheer for, who you root for. Your identity is not found in your gender, your ethnicity, or your socioeconomic status. You're not defined by your past as an addict or an alcoholic or a victim of abuse in one way or another. You're not what counselors would say that you are defined by, your genetic makeup or your past history. You are not what your bosses might tell you you are defined by or your present performance on the job. You are not what your parents and teachers might tell you that you are based on your potential or in the future. No, you are in Christ. Christ is in you. He is your identity. He is who we need to model after. Don't let this world steal that away from you. Christ is in you now and forever. That is our identity forever. We have a new identity, which leads to an entirely different perspective. Verse 16 of our passage, Therefore, from now on, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we have known Christ according to the flesh, yet now we know him thus no longer. This is what Paul is trying to say. We don't, we don't view the world from a worldly perspective anymore. It goes back to what we said earlier about not boasting on outward appearance, but it's what's in our heart. It's who we are in our heart that matters to God. And we have a different uh, uh, perspective on people around us as well. And when we look at people, you know, we don't see them in mainly terms of, you know, their status in life or their ethnicity or this or that or whatever it may be. We look at people whether they're either in Christ or not in Christ. That's what we should be going after is their salvation in the end. We love and care for those around us. We serve each other here in the church. We lay down our lives and sacrifice for each other here in this congregation for those in the church. And that's what Paul is saying here. He's saying, church here at Corinth, 
be reconciled to God and then be reconciled to each other. And then our entirely different perspective on, on the world comes in. We look at our neighbors and our co-workers and we, we have the courage to go to them and, and ask them if they're in Christ or not. We are now, at that point, privileged to work with God. 2 Corinthians 6 and 1, right after all this in, in chapter 5, Paul says, We then, as workers together with Him, which is God, also plead with you not to receive the grace of God in vain. For he says, In an acceptable time I have heard you, and in the day of salvation I have helped you. Behold, now is the accepted time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. That's quite the phrase. Working together with God. How has God chosen to make this message of reconciliation known? We think about it, you know, God could do anything he wanted to do right now to let the whole world know about his plan of salvation. He could, uh, he could write it in the, in the sky to us this morning. We could look up and we could see our name or he could put it in the stars, his plan of salvation, or he could even think it and put it in our minds and we wouldn't need the scriptures anymore. God could do that, but he has chosen not to. Why has he chosen to do it that way? Because he's just chosen to work with you and I, working together with God. It's an awesome thing to, uh, to speak for God in, in teaching up here. And I hope we're not gathered here every week just to hear one man or, you know, go through the motions and then the rest of the week we're not you know, worshiping God in other ways. We've got the privilege to work with God every day of our life, every hour that we're awake to spread and work with God. It's a privilege. Paul is saying here also in verse 3, which I love, verse 3, he says, we put no obstacle in anyone's way so that no fault may be found in our ministry. That's the English Standard Version. Paul's saying, I've done everything I can to keep from being an obstacle for some, from somebody following the gospel. He's done all he can. And can we say that? Can we say the same thing? Can we say that somebody has not obeyed the gospel of Christ only because they're rejecting Christ, not because we've gotten away? Because we do a good job at messing things up all the time. We do a really good job at that. So let the gospel do its work, work alongside with God so we all may stand before the judgment seat of Christ one day and be in good favor with Him. That's the lesson. We went through three points. May the fear of God captivate us. May the fear of God control us. And the gospel of God reconcile us. We thank you for listening to our podcast put on by the Church of Christ at 2215 Plans Road in Bakersfield. If you would like any additional information or you would like to receive a free Bible correspondence course by mail, please email us at info at churchofchristbakersfield.com. Our service times are Sundays at 10.30 a.m. and 5 p.m. and Wednesdays at 7.30 p.m. Please make plans to join us. We would love for you to be our honored guest.